Hey there, it's me, Malika. For the next few episodes, I'm handing over the microphone to my colleague, Patty Sabga, to let her share some things you'll want to know. When she went missing, we were being told to stay in our houses after dark. So the solution for a woman getting killed is for us to never go outside. That's Jamie Klingler, an American living in London. She and a group of women organized a vigil to mourn the death of Sarah Everard. Sarah was a 33-year-old marketing executive. She went missing while walking home from a friend's house on the evening of March 3rd near Clapham Common, a park in South London. On March 3rd, CCTV caught Sarah Everard walking home in London around 9.30 p.m. Forensic officers have spent the day desperately searching for any clues that may lead them to the missing 33-year-old. Sarah Everard's body was found hidden in woodland more than a week after she went missing. Her body was identified. A London Metropolitan Police officer has been charged with her kidnap and murder. Sarah's killing, her alleged murderer, and the events that followed have sparked a moment of reckoning in the UK about violence against women, police brutality, and the right to protest. I'm Patricia Sabga, in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Last weekend, social media and TV ignited with images of London Metropolitan Police officers pushing women protesters back, shoving them, forcing some to lie face down while they were handcuffed as they held a vigil for Sarah Everard. London Metropolitan Police Chief Cressida Dick said the police's actions were justified due to COVID restrictions and social distancing requirements. If it had been lawful, I'd have been there. I'd have been at a vigil. We had a really big crowd that gathered, lots of speeches, and quite rightly, as far as I can see, my team felt this is now an unlawful gathering, uh, which poses a considerable risk to people's health. Jamie Klingler, the American event organizer, has a different take. How could you make this situation worse? Oh, I know, let's have some violence against women at a rally against violence against women. Like, it's the worst optics ever. Jamie says it didn't have to be that way, that the violence and chaos could have been avoided. But to understand her thinking, we have to start with how Jamie felt when she learned of Sarah's disappearance. The pit of your stomach knows that she was hurt. And, like, that's the part, is is just knowing that fear and knowing that her family's waiting for news. And it's just dreadful. But it also, it, it fractures your ability to walk outside. Like part of the reason that I struggle to read so many people's accounts of what's happened to them is because every bit of confidence and security that I've built up, it breaks it down little by little. So even if I wasn't the one victimized, you feel it as an attack on you. Jamie felt compelled to do something when she heard that Sarah had been murdered. I just was like, oh, I'm going to start a vigil. I need to be around other people. I live by myself. I needed a hug. I needed to see other women that were feeling as bad as I was feeling. So last week, via Zoom, she and a group of women organized an event to mourn the death of Sarah, but also to share their own experiences of gender violence. They called the group Reclaim the Streets. 
And they had the same ideas in terms of keeping it COVID safe and making sure women felt as safe as possible. Knowing big gatherings were prohibited in London because of COVID restrictions, Reclaim the Streets sought official permission to hold the vigil. So we took the police to court and the police were told that we were allowed to protest but, and to have a vigil, but they had to give us the parameters within which it's legal because of COVID and COVID restrictions. They refused to give us those parameters, so we were forced to cancel. So they organized a virtual vigil and told people not to show up for the in-person event they had canceled. People decided to go anyway, and a group called Sisters Uncut called for people to go anyway because they don't believe that you should listen to police stopping your human rights to protest, which I quite agree with that I, I have very mixed feelings. I feel conflicted on the fact that I didn't go and show my solidarity, but I, I had huge personal liability had I gone. And we were told we were liable for criminal prosecution and 10,000 pounds of fines each. Jamie stayed home and, like many people, saw the videos of police move in and disband the protesters. We did everything right. We went to court. We showed them how we were going to do it. And then the day after the vigil, they said the reason the police had to act in the way they did is that we made them do it, is that everyone crowded in to hear the person talking on the bandstand, and then they didn't do social distancing. We had a loudspeaker set up. We'd already hired a loudspeaker that would have let everyone be social distanced. They caused this entire situation. And so all of a sudden, instead of it being about Sarah and about women and about violence against women at the hands of men, it becomes about whether or not we have the right to protest. Sarah Everard's tragic murder has reignited conversations about gender violence, the right to protest, and police abuse of power. We wanted to know more about those aspects of the story, so we got in touch with someone who's been covering them. My name is Ash Sarka, and I'm contributing editor at Novara Media. Ash is a young journalist, a Muslim woman, and she lives in London. Ash, this is a fear that stalks every single woman on the planet, being attacked while walking home. How did you feel when you heard about Sarah Everard's murder? I think you got it just right. This is a fear which women across the world live with. And it's not an exaggeration when I say that every single woman I know and who I've spoken to about this case feels absolutely gutted, just completely devastated. And it's because she could have been any one of us. And what she was doing is something that all of us do. She was trying to get home. It wasn't particularly late. It was about 9.30 at night. And she also took all of the precautions that as women, you're told to in order to keep yourself safe when you are walking home in the dark. She wore brightly colored clothing. She stuck to main roads. She was on the phone to somebody she knows, in this case, her boyfriend, letting them know where she is. And so it goes to show that these things happening, it never was about what we did wrong. The wrong was not ours. The wrong was the perpetrators. And because we focused so much on the question of what women should do or shouldn't do, we've actually failed to protect them. This problem has been around literally forever. It's a problem in the UK. It's a problem around the world. You can't walk down the street 
alone or at night without being stalked by that fear of being attacked. Which makes me wonder, why has Sarah Everard's murder sparked a moment of reckoning? What is it about this time that has proven to be a tipping point? You know, I think there's a few things about this case. So one is that it took place in public, whereas we know that the majority of gender-based violence occurs within the home. So the fact this happened in public, I think, really chimed with also some of the enduring narratives of how we frame and conceive of violence against women. We think about it as stranger danger. The other matter is the target. So abductions and murders of that kind are rare in the UK, but where they do occur, they disproportionately impact women who work in the sex industry. We also know that women of color and transgender women are vulnerable to certain kinds of violence, which are amplified by their other marginalized identity. And so I think the fact that Sarah Everard was none of those things also meant that she was taken up by the media perhaps more readily than other victims may have otherwise been. I want to delve into some really in one way shocking, but in other ways not surprising statistics. Shocking to the general public, probably not surprising to women. But last week, a survey from UN Women UK said that 97% of women between the ages of 18 to 24 said they had been sexually harassed. I'm wondering, would you share with us what has been your experience as a woman living in UK? We've got 97% of women saying I've been sexually harassed. And we've got 100% of men saying it wasn't me. When I read that statistic, it really, it made me reevaluate my own experiences because it made me think, oh my God, there are so many times that I've been on my way home, sometimes in the middle of the day, and I've been sexually harassed. And then I put my key through the door, I close the door and I forget about it. Not because it wasn't distressing, but because it's so commonplace and there's gonna be another one tomorrow. And it's completely outrageous when you frame it like that, that half the world's population have to live like this and we consider it somehow just a fact of life. I wanna move on to the Met Police because this case has also really shined a spotlight on some pretty heavy-handed police tactics. Now, the, the Met Police defended their actions on the grounds that the vigil, which attracted thousands of people, they say opposed a threat to public health during the pandemic. But protesters are saying, hey, this curtailed women's civil liberties, and they've been calling for the resignation of the head of the Met Police, Cressida Dick. What does the, that narrative and that, that counter-narrative say about the balance UK police are striking between public safety and civil liberties, and especially women's freedoms. First, we have to look at why the police were able to go in in such a heavy-handed way. It's because the government did not allow a protest exemption within the lockdown laws. Now, the law regarding lockdown and the prohibition of public gatherings needs to be read in tandem with the Human Rights Act. And in the Human Rights Act, we have the lawful right to protest. And so that's why even though the government failed its legislative duty to protect the right to protest in lockdown legislation, the police are not off the hook. Let's take the events of Saturday night. A lot of people have said to me, do they not know how bad this looks? The suspect arrested 
and charged with the murder of Sarah Everard was himself a serving police officer. He may be innocent, but it's just that there's this kind of renewed focus about the behavior of police towards women because of that fact. And so to see male police officers pushing to the ground, shoving, throwing punches at female mourners was just completely in in awful taste. A new bill, the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill, passed its first hurdle in the House of Commons this week. It would make it much easier for police to crack down on protests that they say are too rowdy or too disruptive. Now, the government says it was drafted in response to Extinction Rebellion, the climate activist group trying to shut down Heathrow Airport in parts of central London last year. But this bill is coming at a very specific moment in time. It was introduced in a week right after the vigil for Sarah Everard was disbanded with heavy-handed tactics. How are people responding to this bill at this moment in time? The situation has changed very quickly. So Keir Starmer, the leader of the opposition Labour Party, went from saying that his party would abstain on the bill to whipping his MPs to vote against it. And that's purely because of the backlash and the outcry after people saw the heavy-handed tactics employed at the Clapham Common Vigil. You've had days of protests being led by Sisters Uncut, a feminist protest group who've tended to focus on issues around violence against women and cuts to domestic violence services. And they've been out on the streets in numbers between the hundreds and the low thousands mobilising against this bill. There are interesting noises of criticism coming from the Conservatives' own benches. So former Prime Minister Theresa May was critical of the way in which the bill clamps down on non-violent and indeed lawful protest. And you've also had criticism of the fact that the bill would establish up to 10 years imprisonment for defacing a statue, whereas the sentence for rape is five years and above. The average is eight years. So potentially you could get more time in prison for taking down the statue of a slave owner than you could for raping or brutalizing a woman. Now, you, there's also a push right now to amend the domestic abuse bill, making misogyny a hate crime, which would open the door to tougher sentencing, creating a stalker registry, and also sending police in plain clothes to bars and clubs to monitor for possible predatory and suspicious offenders. Can you tell us a little bit more about these amendments that people are agitating for right now? And do you think it would make a difference? Would, it make, would they make women safer? So let's look at the idea of making misogyny a hate crime. This is something which some feminist groups and some women's organizations have called for. So while on the one hand, it could open the door in terms of the criminal justice system to having tougher sentencing because you include misogyny as an aggravating factor. How the Nottingham Police described it is that in practice, it ended up being a tick box exercise. The other thing to bear in mind is that where we are at the minute in terms of sexual violence convictions and charges is that it's very low. So you can bring in all the new legislation you want. But the fact is, is that one, there's a huge backlog in the courts. And that's because our justice system has had an awful lot of money taken out of it over the past 10 years. And rape charges and convictions are at historic lows. 
So only 3% of rapes which are reported to the police end in a criminal charge for either rape or a related offence. Those are very low numbers. And even with that, we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg because only 2 in 10 rapes are ever reported. Has this changed the conversation around not only gender-based violence against women, but really just male violence against men and gender non-conforming individuals? And are we seeing that conversation start to at least take root because of this? I think what we've seen over the last few decades are norms around masculinity really changing and being challenged. And that's happening in a much deeper way Because what homophobia is, is a kind of femphobia. It's a way of policing men's behavior by saying, if you do anything which we deem to be effeminate or we deem to be unmanly, you will be subject to social humiliation, ostracism, or even violence. And it's something which has been opening up as a conversation about how men feel very constrained by some of these norms as well. Now, with your consent, I'd like to get very personal with you. You are a British Muslim woman of color. You're a journalist. And you have shared with us that you yourself are a survivor of abuse. Do you think that this is enough now that this movement has legs, that there's momentum here? And that what would be the next steps that the UK has to Mm. take that would actually make women feel safer in UK? So I think that one of the things that we've got to recognize is that whether you are directly a survivor of sexual violence or domestic abuse or gender-based violence or not, as a woman or as a femme person, your life is conditioned by that kind of violence. So for half the world's population, regardless of whether or not they themselves have been victimized in that way, this shapes our lives. And so I think that's got to be the starting point for any movement trying to change these cultural and societal norms which reproduce male violence down the generations. And I do see that happening here in the UK as a result of this tragic case of Sarah Everard. What I think needs to happen is that it can't just be spectacle because we saw with the Me Too movement is that actually there are sections of the media who are quite happy to peddle in, you know, what I would call trauma gawping, where what they want to do is hear these terrible stories and women replaying these very painful events again and again, but then nothing changes. And so the thing which is the difference between trauma gawping and effective action has got to be political organising. So I think if what we can do about this moment is turn it into a movement and a movement which is centered around these concrete demands, we can get somewhere. But if we let it just be about the replaying of trauma, it's going to be another me too, which is profoundly emotionally powerful, but doesn't necessarily result in lasting political change. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Ney Alvarez, Dina Kesbet and Priyanka Tilve, with Nagin Oliai, Alexandra Locke, Amy Walters, and me, Patricia Sovga, in for Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Steve Lack mixed and edited this episode. 
Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer, and Stacey Samuel is the Takes executive producer. We'll be back on Monday. <laughs>